in our significantly disrupted world. Can leaders overcome extreme challenges in order to bring together stronger teams while building a better culture? In this episode, I speak to David Burkus, best-selling author of four books and one of the world's leading business thinkers, about healthy work conflict, the impact of our human networks, and what it really takes to build a positive company culture. We have this tendency to think of companies with strong and positive company cultures as just fun and, oh, there's a foosball table over there and we buy free food for everybody and, and that sort of thing. And we don't think about that, that positive cultures don't happen by accident. Most cultures happen by accident, but positive cultures are deliberate. David Burkus has been ranked as one of the world's top business thought leaders by Thinkers50. He is a sought-after international speaker, and his TED Talk about knowing how much your coworkers are paid has been viewed over two million times. He's worked with leaders from organizations across all industries, including at Google and the U.S. Naval Academy. So, want to learn more about how to optimize your team and your culture during difficult times? Let's discuss. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this is Humans Now and Then. David Burkus, thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you on today. And we had a little bit of a side conversation before we started recording here. There's so many things that I see David put out in the world that I agree with wholeheartedly, but I also feel like I learned so much from it. So I'm so excited to have you here to talk about some of this stuff and some of your books and some of your writings and some of the things that you research. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. I'm, I'm just happy when, you know, when I see you click like or anything like that, I'm just happy anybody reads any of it, right? <laughs> like that's a, I started in that place of like, wow, it's so awesome that people actually, I mean, I think it's cool stuff but I've been wrong before, right? So <laughs> I'm, great. I'm grateful for anybody who clicks like or says any of that. So yeah, thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. But I also think it's tremendously important. And I think the COVID pandemic has done a lot of things for us to rethink how we do our work yeah. or how we structure our organizations in different ways. Our level of empathy has had to change significantly uh, recently just simply because so many people are, are facing so many different challenges and disruptions in life. So that starts to raise some of these issues that you bring up to the surface around really thinking about how to help your people be successful and meet them where they are and help your organizations move forward differently. And many of us have been talking long before the pandemic about how the old ways of work just were no longer working. Yeah, And of course, that's that's a big part of your game. Uh, but now more relevant than ever, and I think more people understand the need uh, than they ever have uh, as well. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think they were... There were a lot of misconceptions that we had about the nature of work, even on January 1st. Like if you would have told major Fortune 100 CEOs that, hey, by, by June 1st, all of your people are going to be working from home, uh, they wouldn't have believed you. Mm -hmm. They also wouldn't have believed that working from home means that you need to be more deliberate and collaborative, not less so, right? Um, but these are the things that we're we're all learning in this sort of forced work from. I'm at the point now where I kind of refer to it as work from anywhere, not necessarily work from home. Yeah. Because I think depending on where you live, you your offices might be open again or closed. But I don't think anybody's going to go back all of the time. Even even years from now, when it's all over, I think this whole situation forced us to rethink a lot of things about the role of work in our life. And now different people have different opinions on that. And that's going to change a lot of things. And all of those things make collaboration and teamwork more important, not less so, which is, again, I think a big misconception that people had even before. I mean, I was shouting things like talent flows from teams years and years ago. Um, but I think when we all went back to our, our homes or apartments or whatever, and they gave us a laptop and a phone and said, you're a remote worker for the next two weeks. Little did we know it'd be six months 
plus. <laughs> um, I think we all thought that meant we were going to work independently more often. And right. you know, the, w- when people say things like Zoom fatigue is a real thing, it's because we realize that this collaboration piece is more important. And so now we're we're in this situation as we're recording this, where that's really what we're trying to figure out is how can we make teams work best when they're not even in the same room together, which is a big challenge. I'm a lot more optimistic now than I was a couple months ago, I should say that, because we're starting to figure that out. And that message of that these things are important, that a lot of our misconception about work need to be corrected, the stuff that you and I have been talking about before this have been proven to be even more important. So that's, you know, that's a good thing, too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, There's so much of what you just said is true. And you're right. We're at this kind of turning point, I think, right now, where people are learning so much from the last several months of being separated from one another and how organizations have to kind of grapple with some of the things they're seeing, including uh, all of a sudden a downward spiral or not in some organizations. I probably shouldn't be too dramatic about it, but a downward (laughs) turn in uh, engagement in some organizations. Uh, Increase in adults reporting uh, feeling effects of mental illness. And that increase has happened uh, significantly over the last several months. The last data I saw was 53% of adults reporting uh, mental health impacts because of the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, these are things organizations need to consider when they think about structuring their work environment beyond the technology, beyond Zoom, beyond Teams. If we look behind, discover the risks of working from home and have your remote workforce and folks feeling disconnected. What are some of the benefits you think are opportunities we might look for in a remote workforce? Yeah, well, you know, I think we already sort of spoke to the idea that this was a grand realization that it's not about the tools, it's about what you use them yeah. for. Like, hey, it's great that everybody can get on Zoom or Microsoft Teams or or some people still use Citrix, which really, you know, sort of weirds me out. Yeah. They're not a sponsor of the show, right? Okay. We're, no, <laughs> so. no, we're good. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's not about the tools that we use to to keep people informationally connected. It's about that sense of connection, right? All of these mental health issues. I mean, yes, they're drawn by the stress of the pandemic and that sort of thing, but they're also drawn by this from the sense of isolation. Like mm-hmm. we know, we've known that depression and isolation are correlated strongly, um, possibly causal on the I- isolation side coming first. So that makes these things more important. That, that mm-hmm. creates an opportunity though. And I was talking about this the other day and I don't, I don't remember who I was talking about it with, but we were talking about culture and company culture and team culture and how do you do that in a remote environment. And I said, well, actually, I think if we're really serious about it, it might be easier. Like we have this tendency to think of companies with strong and positive company cultures as just fun and, oh, there's a foosball table over there and we buy free food for everybody and, and that sort of thing. And we don't think about that, that positive cultures don't happen by accident. Most cultures happen by accident, but positive cultures are deliberate. And now we're all forced to actually be deliberate about not just how do we, the question isn't how do we build culture remotely, right? The the question is, what do we want our team's culture to be? And then once we know that, what rhythms and habits and rituals and things do we need to put into our team's working life to create that culture? You look at an example like a And there's such a cliched example. I hate that I'm bringing this up, but like a Google, for example, everybody talks about culture and they talk about the free food. Nobody talks about the fact that the the free food is really there because all of the tables have four or more seats around them. And it's actually about encouraging people to gather over food and have conversations with people they wouldn't normally talk with. Like that's an example of we started from a deliberate place and then we took actions based on it in a co-located situation. We need to now be doing the same thing with what do we want our team's culture to be? What are our shared values and those sort of things? And then also what actions do we need to take that'll reinforce that culture? It's a risk in that we have to do this um, deliberately and we're not all that good at it. But if we get serious about doing it deliberately, then I think you can end up having a stronger team culture 
with um, a distributed team than you can with a, a co-located one because the co-located ones usually leave it up to chance. And I've, I have, I mean, we just did a massive research project looking at a lot of different companies up to up to over a thousand employee companies that are fully distributed. And almost all of them have great positive company cultures because the leaders realize that this is something we need to be deliberate about because it won't happen organically because our people don't see each other. Yeah, there's so much there that's so important. The point about culture transformation, needing to be intentional and deliberate. And so many folks, I think, focus on the themes and try to put these messages out to help people feel better, but don't follow up with changes within the organization and how they work that really reinforce what they're trying to achieve. So you're right, it takes intention. It takes uh, deliberate action to be able to achieve the outcomes you're looking for. And this point in time, it's tremendously important, especially for those organizations that are experiencing a decrease in employee engagement. I think some organizations, um, more on the command and control side, might uh, make some level of a mistake in starting to try to monitor their employees a little bit more, make them feel uncomfortable or untrusted. And I think that's uh, probably a mistake that I've seen some organizations start to turn towards. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Don't even get me started on the monitoring software (laughs) thing. Oh, my Lord. (laughs) Yeah. There's no better way to disengage your workforce than to tell them you don't trust them. Yeah. and And that's exactly right, right? The thought is, oh, well, we're trying to make sure that everybody is effective and we're trying to catch that one person out of 100 that's going to take advantage of the system. And be, But like, those people are not going to meet their objectives 30 days from now anyway. So the monitoring idea is pointless yeah. because you're going to see that failure anyway. In the meantime, you've got 99 other people who now say that exact message, you're dead on, that they don't trust me, and that's why they're doing this. I was reading a thing about software that actually uses facial recognition technology to know when your people are at their computer, right? Mm. Before, monitoring software used to just monitor what windows were open in your computer. Oh, they spent three hours in Outlook. They were obviously, right? Now it's whether or not you're actually, that's that's like, I, disgusting is probably the word I'm going for. But Because if you haven't realized that this situation remote work or working from anywhere, whatever whatever you want to call it, has always required trust and autonomy. And if you don't you want to recognize that now it requires even more of that, then you know I, I don't know what to tell you. I guess buy the software and it, enjoy your disengaged workforce and lower productivity as a result of it, not, not the long-term benefits that'll serve you even better when we all get to gather back again. Uh, and it'll serve you in the future even more because you've built a culture on that trust and autonomy piece. Oh, absolutely. There's the element of human behavior that people often miss in trying to regain or maintain control in their ecosystem. And it's a mistake that organizations have made over time. But now maybe we're in this shift towards thinking differently about how we build our cultures, how we transform our cultures, how we engage our people, and thinking more about those aspects of human behavior that have been often deprioritized, or maybe even just folks don't understand the importance of those things. So let's talk about a couple of those things. I'm going to kind of point back to uh, some of your books. So I just got through Pick a Fight and I would recommend it to folks as a great short read. It has a lot of great examples of real life examples of organizations that have gone through some level of transformation, taken some level of risk and really going towards unique goals that have really paid off. Um, But one of the things that you talk about in that book is the importance of shared values and superordinate goals. And as someone like myself, understanding the importance of strong team dynamics, I really love for you to talk a little bit about the importance of shared values and superordinate goals and getting your workforce engaged. Yeah, yeah. So 
a lot of this research comes from the non-organizational world. I found it actually a number of years ago, and I've always been sort of chewing on it. It started with a piece of research from Artists International, and this is a um, nonprofit group of researchers that well, they study terrorists. I don't really know. There's not really a diplomatic way to say that. They study terrorists. They study um, ideological conflicts. You know, so they study the Middle East conflict a lot. They they study the violence that people take on for various different reasons to try and answer the question, like you know, why do people do this? Why do people fly from a country like the UK all the way to um, Iraq or Afghanistan and join the ISIS caliphate? Like, why does that happen? Why do why would rational people do that? Right. And the thing that they find is that usually those people are missing something in their life and that these uh, ideological struggles create an opportunity to um, create what they call sacred values, right? Which are a sense of shared values that elevate to the level of sacred because they're willing to be sort of worth fighting for. And then this other thing called the superordinate goal, which is this mission requires our interdependence and failure in the mission threatens our freedoms or threatens our independence or threatens those sense of shared values. And it sort of requires people to bond in a way that they haven't bonded before. And that's, that's what sort of creates this motivation. So then I started looking at it from the context of, okay, okay what's, what's the like... What's the stripped down organizational psychology safer way to describe these same things and found a number of different studies about the importance of those shared values and superordinate goals in particular. This idea that, you know, if if you work in an organization larger than, let's say, I don't know, let's say 50 people, probably 100 people, right? If you go to, from, to medium sized business, you now have divisions and different bosses and not everybody gets to interact with the founder of the company. And you, you scale that to a 50,000 person company and you have silos and politics and turf wars. And you usually have that because there isn't a clear superordinate goal. This as an organization is what we're fighting for. This organ- as an organization is the cause that we're sort of working towards that that makes people put aside those differences and focus on this bigger thing. And we've seen the research in superordinate goals and that bonding ability from everything. I mean, the original studies of this weren't done by Artists International. They were done um, by child psychologists, Muzaffar Sharif, and looking at the way that preteens, kids, form these little tribes and these little cliques. And, you know, all of us have had odd experiences in high school. And I think it helped us explain a lot of this <laughs> and how superordinate goals, the appeal to that um, can actually get those people to to squelch those little differences and reasons to separate. Right. So there's a lot we can do in the research on that. I think it's candidly, I think it says a lot about our country and sort of even our world that we were quite divisive and quite heated rhetoric. And then for a time we were, we had no idea what to expect from this virus. And so there was a, there was a beautiful, I mean, it was a tragic, but it was also a beautiful couple of weeks where the entire world was united in this fight, right? It, and nobody was pointing fingers at it. Everybody was thinking about a cure. Information was shared, being shared across um, what would normally, like in the medical science community, for example, people c- keep their data really, really hidden away until you get that paper in nature. And this time around, it was it was too big of a deal. We need to be fighting this thing. And so people were putting preprints online and saying, hey, here's what we think. And this is what's going. And it was, it was messy, but it was much more collaborative than we've ever seen because there was a truly sort of global fight that forced people together. And this is why I think this is so important for organizations moving forward, by the way, is because even the act of just working from home to flatten the curve was seen as doing your part for this broader cause. And when it's over and curve is flattened and it's safe to go back, we can't just go back to like, great, all right, everybody get focused on making widgets again. That's not going to work. We're going to need to find some other new superordinate goal to appeal to, even if it's just at an organizational level, because people are used to that feeling that their work and even where they're being asked to work has a sense of purpose. And if you don't have a plan to replace that, well, then we go right back to the silos, politics, and turf wars. 
Oh, yeah. And I'm so glad you brought up silos because that's the first thing I thought about when I read this, too, is if you're an organization, you want to understand how to break down your silos. One of the first things you should try to do is figure out how those teams can work together towards a common goal. Yeah. Because it's an effective way to get people to work together. Or as you put in your book, a common enemy. Yeah. What are we trying to defeat? What is the purpose that each of us are trying to put towards something that we can work together to achieve that's meaningful? And so let's talk about purpose a little bit more, because that's another element here. And beyond just the goals and the superordinate goals that we might talk about for teams, the shared values that bring people together, there's a purpose at different levels that also brings a highly engaged team. And it's important that every person on a given team understands how their contributions contribute to that larger goal. Let's talk a little bit about the value of a sense of purpose both for individuals and for teams. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so we talk about the shared values and superordinate goals and and my litmus test, and I fully recognize that it might be too violent rhetoric for some people. About about 4% of the people that hear the ideas and pick a fight have like a, I don't want to fight anybody. And I get that. But keep in mind, we're talking about a different type of fight. We're talking about what are you fighting for, not who are you fighting. And so I use that question, what are we fighting for, as a litmus test for do you have a purpose that individuals and teams can see their role in, right? Most organizations have this grandiose mission statement that unfortunately, too many of them still start with the term shareholder value, um, which I understand the legal rationales for and all that sort of stuff. That's not worth putting in a mission statement because it's not going to help any of your people. I think the big disconnect in organizations, you know, we've talked about the importance of purpose and organizations having that purpose for, I, I don't know, I, I, probably since before I was born, but especially in the last you know 20 years, we've talked about that importance, but the disconnect happens in translating that higher organizational purpose down to the individual roles, mm. right? So what are we doing to make people know that the work that they do contributes to that sense of purpose? And you look at the organizations that benefit from a motivating dynamic of purpose, it's usually because they either went to great lengths to convey that or trained their team leaders on how to help individuals think through the, their role and their job and who it helps and how it contributes to that larger fight. Like in the book, we talk about KPMG, the accounting firm, which is a, a this fascinating intervention they did a number of years ago where, I mean, it's accounting, right? Like it's, it's boring. I'm sorry. It's just, it is. And not to accountants, I get that. But like to most of us, we're thinking this is boring. And they do, they do auditing and uh, so tax accounting, but also like fraud auditing and, and making sure books are, are proper for publicly traded companies. Like they do the boringest of the boring stuff. I'm just <laughs> And it's hard to convey that sense of purpose in that regard. But one of the things they did is they look back throughout their history and they realized that KPMG was involved in the auditing of, they were involved in the vote count for the election in South Africa that elected Nelson Mandela, right? They were involved in the auditing of and keeping track of all of the contracts during the Lend-Lease Act in World War II, which is how the United States first joined the Allies, for, first by the Lend-Lease Act, then later in actual armed conflict. They were a part of making sure those contracts. When the, when the Iranian hostage crisis was going on in the 70s, they were the ones going back through all of these different contracts to arrive at a number to help the negotiations between both sides, right? So they rolled this out in this broader We Shape History campaign, which is great, right? It shows how what we do is actually important, even if it doesn't seem like it on a day-to-day basis. But that doesn't have a lot of effect unless you create an opportunity for individuals and teams to see how their work contributes to it. So what they did during the first part of the We Shape History campaign, they made up all these different posters reminding people of the Nelson Mandela election and the Lend-Lease Act and all that sort of stuff. And then they followed up with this thing they called the 10,000 Stories Challenge, where we said, we want to know, you want to know your answer to the question. You know, how does the work that you're doing shape history? And they gave people even this little app where they could make their own version of the poster, 
right? So whatever work you're doing, whatever project you're on, et cetera, how does that help shape history? And now you can make a poster that looks like the same one and submit it to us. And they got they got plenty more than 10, just 10,000 stories throughout the organization. But most importantly, what they found afterwards is that in terms of engagement, the biggest contributor wasn't this campaign. I mean, it helped overall, but there was a huge split between whether or not a team leader took the time to have these conversations on an individual level or with the whole team and get their team involved in this process or whether they just went, yeah, you know, we shape history, we've been a part of some big stuff before, so let's get back to work, right? The, the level of enthusiasm that a team leader had for helping people connect the work that they did on a day-to-day basis to that broader purpose had a massive impact on that. And that's why I think most organizations, that, that's where it breaks down. It's not hard to sell senior leaders on the idea that organizations need to be purpose-driven. What's hard is to train everyone in a leadership role in the organization, how to get people to see that the day-to-day work makes a contribution too. And we know it does because if it didn't, we would outsource it, right? So we know it does. We just need to have those conversations. Yeah. And I think some of that is also just shifting the mindset from the old way of working and thinking beyond just task-based work. So in you know old ways of working, you might have a leader that sets out the number of tasks that you need to do to complete a project and assign people to tasks and just expect them to be super happy about that. Right. No, I agree. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a the mistake that some organizations still continue to make, that mindset that they had in the past about people completing tasks versus people contributing with their strengths towards a greater purpose and a greater goal. And the difference in output or the difference in motivation that you're going to receive from those employees employees when they feel a connection to the work that they're doing and understand that what they're doing matters in that work and achieving that goal. Yeah. Yep. Totally. Cool. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit because I've been intrigued by your book, Friend of a Friend, for some time. (laughs) One reason why, and again, we had that conversation before we started recording here about we're both a little bit of network nerds. And we're not talking about technical networks. We're talking about people networks, how we're all connected to one another. Um, It's fascinating stuff. It impacts us in ways that we don't always expect or understand. And a friend of a friend talks through some of those impacts of how our networks, our greater expanded networks impact us. And so let's talk a little bit about how our personal networks impact us, our perceptions, our behavior, and potentially how we do our work. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know what's interesting is we're talking about human networks, but ironically, a lot of the research works on computer networks too. Like the concepts are the same in the way that computer networks, the internet works, electrical grids, et cetera. It's it's actually sort of a fascinating element of that. But again, that's me getting nerdy. My apologies. <laughs> no, so, it's fine. I mean, fundamentally, when we talk about when we talk about our network, we you know we mean the people that we're connected to, the people we know. I, I actually try and take the possessive out of it and just say it's the network, and we're all privileged to be a part of it, right? But that's a the semantics. Fundamentally, networks provide us with information. We hear about things through the people around us. We hear about opinions first through the people around us. We take our cues on what social norms are from the people around us. We get our information from the people around us. The closer they are to you, the more you get that information and adopt that worldview and perception. But uh, the people away from you, you know, further away from you can be a, an amazing source of alternative perspectives and alternative behavior. In fact, the people that are sort of the most in that silo or that um, echo chamber or that cluster are people that don't take the time to recognize that what in the research literature we would call your weak ties, people you don't know very well, or your dormant ties, people you may know well, but you don't talk to all that frequently. Those are your best sources of new information, new ideas. We, we've heard some of this in, you know, in job hunting books. They always talk about how weak ties help with more job leads. Well, that's true because of the information piece, right? 
Uh, and so the the interesting thing to me, and this is a running theme throughout Friend of a Friend, is that it's a much better perspective to try and get a handle on the network that's all around you so you know where to go for certain pieces of information, right? Like the people who you see on Facebook every day are probably not the best source of information. Everybody in the US is headed towards an election, but we've got a lot of state referendum questions. And if I want to know uh, how I should think about that. Well, first of all, I should do the research on my own, but obviously I'm going to see on Facebook and the social media, I'm going to see people posting their opinions about it. Well, the people that I talk to the most often are going to be the people that think like me. That's a good thing and a bad thing, right? We use it as a shortcut to actually thinking for a long period of time. But also once we're aware that those echo chambers exist, we can be deliberate about seeking out the people that we disagree with and go, where are you on this issue? Because I want to understand your perspective too. And you know, I say that in the context of a, of a very political question, but it happens everywhere else too. Business history is full of organizations making terrible decisions because they were in too much of an echo chamber. They only really saw things a certain way, right? Xerox invented the personal computer, but thought this has nothing to do with documents and photocopies and, and physical document creation. There's nothing here. Kodak invented the digital camera and thought, oh, that's fascinating, but film is better quality. This is just sort of a little distraction. If you, No one would have believed you if you would have told the senior executives at Kodak, they're like, no, 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 no. One day that little thing is going to be a better quality than a film camera, and it's going to be, and you're going to have three of them, four of them on everyone's phone that sits in their pocket every day. First of all, they wouldn't have even believed you about the phone in the pocket thing, let alone the idea that there are cameras, right? But the people who worked in the technology space, they did, right? And so other companies that have been playing around with other technologies, uh, Fuji, for example, and other, a lot of other Japanese companies, took that technology, they had the, the source of information to see the potential, and developed it. So this is the big thing to me with how networks impact our perceptions and behavior. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a risk and an opportunity here, right? The, the risk is that we now that we know this, we allow ourselves to be sort of too echo-chambered two inside of a group of people to just make us feel comfortable. The opportunity is once we recognize that, uh, one of the ways I like to say it often is that diversity is a network problem, right? If we want more diversity in our life, diversity of any capacity, right? Then one of the things we need to recognize is that networks aren't designed to serve you those. They're designed to serve you self-similarities. And so it takes some deliberate action to move across the network to go find the different and interact with it more often. And then you can actually leverage networks to serve you more of those people as people who think different than you move closer to you inside the network. Wow. Yeah. And there's so much, I mean, I, I'm trying to hold myself back from going off on that tangent on echo chambers, because I feel like we could have a whole nother episode that just discusses that topic alone. Yeah. The importance of, you know, diversity in your network, diversity of thought, um, bringing different people together with different ideas and being comfortable with healthy conflict within teams and organizations to come up with the best solution to move forward. And organizations that have figured this out have, you know, become some of the most innovative organizations that are in the world today. Um, it's one of those kind of secret sauce uh, recipes for organizations to really become truly innovative and really disrupt things for the better. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I actually, I wrote about that in my first book. I called it the cohesive myth, which is we look at these prolifically creative or innovative firms and we think, oh, it must be so much fun to work there. It must be so, you know, mm -hmm. and, and in reality, these are the firms that have more conflict than your average firm. They just, uh, yeah. instead of sending everybody to a conflict resolution workshop that taught you how to, how to you know, quell it, they were taught, here's how you harness task-focused conflict to stay productive. Here's how you phrase disagreements so they don't get personal. And then here's also the, the sort of mental reset that you need to think that when people are criticizing your idea, that's not a criticism of you. Like it takes all of those things to leverage that conflict piece. And then once you do that, 
you can benefit from having a much much greater diversity of opinion. I think you know there's a there's a lot of organizations I won't name names, but there's a lot of organizations that say we want to do more about diversity and inclusion and then don't because it makes them uncomfortable, mm-hmm. um, but also don't because they don't know where to go. This is actually a, a small scale organization we talk about in the book. If you're hiring from the same pools and most of the people that you're hiring are hiring referrals from current employees and that sort of thing, you're going to get a lot of self-similar people and you're going to click with those people in the interview. You're going to get a lot of proper HR term would be, you're going to get a lot of culture fit, but that might actually be a bad thing if what you're trying to be is more creative, more innovative, and more adaptable to change, right? Hire for people that respectfully dissent from the culture, that is going to help you be more adaptable. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's another topic that I've had some thorough debates about (laughs) is culture fit. Uh, Of course, you know, we can talk about the comfort of the individual or the comfort of the organization with bringing in new ideas. But the reality is a lot of organizations realize the importance of bringing in new ideas in their innovative efforts. And then they just need to take the next step of setting up an environment where those ideas are tolerated and that they are comfortable or learn how, as you mentioned, to handle healthy conflict, because that's really the recipe. It's not everybody gets along necessarily. It's that everybody is able to be respectful in their disagreements. Yeah, I, totally. And it's at all levels, right? Yes. Like I'm a, I'm a massive fan of that Ray Dalio story about getting the email from one of his lower colleagues. So like, you know, Ray, you really sucked in today's meeting. I give you a B minus. You did this wrong and this wrong and this wrong. And he forwarded it to the whole company and said, this is exactly what we all need to be doing to give each other feedback. Don't worry about, you know, if you're criticizing the actions that I did, please don't worry about offending me, right? Oh, yeah. If you're telling me you did this and I don't agree with it and and here's how I think you could get better. The other thing I think that we probably need in this conflict piece to remember is that the conflict is created when I push back on your idea. You still reserve the right to accept or reject my feedback, right? I'm not a big fan of the compliment sandwich and all of these things that try and take the blunt off the criticism. I, I, maybe it's a generational thing. I was raised in that sticks and stones may break my bones thing, right? That like, I still have a right to accept or reject your feedback. Yeah, You giving it to me isn't what should should take offense as long as it's done respectfully and it's focused on actions. You know, if, if you call me fat, I'm probably going to get offended, right? But, <laughs> but if, you, if you talk about how, hey, I noticed that you're not actually working out all that much and you're probably not going to get rid of the results you want, I hire my trainer to tell me that exact thing, right? Yeah. Um, but that's action focused. So, so I think there's that piece too, right? And I think that starts from leaders in particular being willing to receive that negative feedback and then respond in a way that that shows that you value those disagreements of opinion and you value that feedback. You may not accept it. Right. You may actually say, I disagree with you for these reasons, but please, let's keep this conversation going so that we can both be informed. That's a totally different thing. And I think most people are too afraid to do that because they're too afraid that the messenger is going to get killed. Mm. I mean, it's why we say don't kill the messenger because people kill the messenger. <laughs> they, they do. They kill them. They demote them. They, they isolate them from conversations. Absolutely, that happens. I mean, that's a real thing that happens in organizations today, unfortunately. But I think one of the things that you, you kind of tie this into, or one of the things I want to tie this into, is key aspects that allow this type of organization to exist, one being psychological safety. Um, so you're not the messenger getting killed, that you bring up an idea, it's listened and considered. It doesn't mean that's going to be accepted because that's just not a realistic expectation in general. But if you feel trusted and safe enough to be able to speak your mind, whether the idea is accepted or not, it isn't as important as the fact that you feel comfortable comfortable enough to contribute to the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Because the last thing you want to do is shut somebody down in one meeting and then the next time they have a good idea, they keep it to themselves. That's exactly right. That's exactly. Yeah. And, and we, we talked about that. I didn't use the term psychological safety at the time, but we talked about it a bit in 
my first book, The Myth of Creativity, because it's, it's what I call the mousetrap myth, which is this idea that we have an mm. unconscious bias against new ideas and differing information. And if you reject the, oh, that'll never work because we did something similar or the not invented here syndrome, all of those things, if you respond too quickly, they send this subtle little message that compliance is what's valued here, not new ideas. Mm. And then the irony is they hire people like me to come in and work with them because well, we want our people to have more great ideas. Well, I mean, if we start at the source, <laughs> we can help there. That's better than teaching them some brainstorming techniques. How about we teach managers yes. how to respond to new or differing ideas better because that'll send a much bigger message. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I'm going to go on to another topic, but I have to say one thing because I can't keep it in my brain. The thing that I tell people all the time when they're trying to figure out how to boost innovation, you cannot expect that a brainstorming session being scheduled every so often is going to be it because moments of inspiration happen at any point in time. If you expect people to wait that those for those moments of inspiration to happen in brainstorming sessions, you're missing opportunities. It has to be a part of your culture. You have to enable people to bring ideas when they come and be able to find the, an opportunities to discuss and debate those decisions openly. Yeah. So anyway, I just had to get that out of my brain. Uh, so um, that so now, yeah, I'm going to switch gears again, but this is one of the things that I love to ask all of my guests and I would love to know what you have to say about the future. So what are some of the things that make you concerned about the future? Yeah, so uh, one of the things I talked about, and we, we talked about this a bit, but I talked about it in front of a friend, was this idea of homophily, the idea that people cluster to... Um, self-similar ideas and that sort of thing. And it's homophily is one part psychology, like does attract like. We do have a bias to people who are self-similar. And a lot of parts network because once that little bit of self-similarity compounds, it, it just, it gets worse and worse and worse. It's this sort of downward cycle. And it's possible to turn it around with some deliberate action, but you know, I'm not seeing that right now. There's, uh, we talked about in the book, there's about a 30 year research study that shows that people are choosing to live near people that vote near them. And I'm not talking about red states, blue states here in the US. I'm talking about zip codes. I'm talking about neighborhoods, right? I'm talking, and I'm not saying it's because, you know, people have a certain candidate sign, but it's little cues too, right? Like if there's a bunch of Ford F-150s parked in the driveways of that neighborhood, I have a pretty good idea how that neighborhood, right? And same thing is true if it's a bunch of Subarus, right? Like I get these pretty good ideas. And I don't know how we come back from that, right? I don't know. I, we, we've done this before as a society. Every society goes through these sort of divisive cycles and then collaborative cycles. The interesting thing is the collaborative cycles usually happen because of a war or, or you know, something like that, right? Or some outside threat, like we talked about with, with Pick a Fight. And I don't, I don't know what it's going to be for us. We certainly have enough global challenges. You'd think we could pick one and use that to unite everybody, but it's not working. So that's what I'm concerned about. And I don't have the answer to that yet. I just, I see it happening. I know that it'll cycle back. Like people who like to say, oh, politics has never been more divisive. Like people used to get into fist fights. One dude beat another dude with a cane in the 1800s on the floor of Congress, right? So, so we've gotten more divisive <laughs> in the past and come back to it. Um, I just don't know how and I don't know when. And I feel like, especially for like, I have two little kids that are they're eight and six, and I feel like the clock is sort of running out. Like, I would like to know that we are on the swing towards cohesiveness as they're approaching adulthood instead of stuck in this, what we're, where we currently are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And as a fellow parent, I share a lot of those same concerns. It's something I think a lot about. And I have to talk to my kids quite a bit because they ask me lots of questions about what they're seeing. Like my uh, sixth grader who had the unfortunate assignment to watch the the pres first presidential debate for social studies. <laughs> did, did, did their social studies teacher email them afterwards and be like, you know what, actually, you don't need to write anything up. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. I actually haven't heard anything about it since then. And I, I, I feel kind of bad for the teacher because I think the intentions were really good. Yeah. 
But, you know, I don't, that was a lot to explain. Uh, but that aside, that aside, I mean, there's, there's obviously going to be some more things that for us to think about or where the trajectory we're going. Of course, we can hope that those trends start to kind of come back to some level of uh, equal I don't know what the right term is. <laughs> just like whatever feels good to Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a pendulum, right? It always yeah, swings exactly. back. I'm just, I'm getting a little tired of waiting for it to swing oh, back. That's yeah. all. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I think there's many of us that are, uh, that are just kind of had enough of this year <laughs> and are ready to, you know, hopefully have something better. So let's talk about the optimism for the future. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what makes you optimistic or what are you optimistic about for the future? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm incredibly optimistic about the long-term impacts of this whole crisis and response, right? Now, that doesn't, I don't mean to take away from any of the tragedies of this. I think the first couple of months were horrible. I think we all had this misconception that this was going to be two weeks of working from home and then we'd all come back and it would blow over. And that was not true. I think we're dealing with a lot of those long-term implications of early decisions were made and all, all that sort of stuff on in a variety of different contexts that aren't worth going into. But the thing that makes me optimistic is that the, the long-term extension of it forced a lot of people to think long and hard about the role of work in their life. Like in a, a lot of organizations, a lot of regions, uh, and most of, of developed society had this idea that because work was eight to five, it was at the center of your calendar, and then it became the center of your life. And you squeeze some life into the margins of each day before and after, and maybe some of the weekend before you had to spend Sunday afternoon prepping for the next week. And this forced people to break that up. I was the principal and my wife was the vice principal of Burke Academy for like six weeks in the spring. <laughs> and it was awful and we're not good at it, right? We learned that. But we also enjoyed the time with them, right? We enjoyed that sort of one-on-one -on -one time with them. And so now one of us usually makes the point to be at the school bus instead of letting them walk up the hill or a, a lot of times we'd have my mom lives near us and would also be involved in it. And we want more of that active role. We like the idea when we're allowed to again, um, of going and having lunch with them at school and that sort of stuff, right? So that's just our work and our sort of our family. People fit little hobbies into places in the day that wouldn't have worked before when you were expected to be in the fluorescent lit cubicle farm that was your office before. So we used to have work at the center of our lives and everything else in the margins. And this whole thing forced us to figure out what we actually want to put at the center of our lives. Many of us, many, many people for a variety of reasons, didn't have this happen, but a large number of people did. And I'm really optimistic about the implications of that for how we lead organizations in the future, how we live our lives in the future. I think we're headed to a place when the panic dies down um, and the crisis is sort of over where people go, no, I'm not going back to that. I'm not going to back to 50 hours a week in the prime of a, of a week. I'm not going back to that, right? I'll get my objectives done, I'll figure, but I'm not going back to what you asked me to go back to. And I'm really optimistic about that. I think it means leaders are going to need to change. They're going to, if everybody's working from anywhere, they're going to need to know how to lead from anywhere. But I really like where we could be as a society if we all decide to put something else at the center of our life. Mm, yeah. I mean, I think that uh, you're talking about a future that really is more human centric, really based more on our values in life. Also um, on the things that motivate us, right? And our well-being. So that does sound like a fantastic future. And I'm so glad that people like you are in the world to help organizations adjust to that future that might be better for, for everyone. So David Burkus, this has been an absolutely fabulous conversation. I'm so glad that you joined me today. Uh, David's got four fabulous books. We mentioned Pick a Fight. We mentioned Friend of a Friend. We might have also mentioned Under New Management and the Myths of Creativity. Go grab all of them. Go out and check them out on LinkedIn and follow his amazing work. 
there's never a time that his work has been more relevant. So David Burkus, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. During this conversation, David spelled out several fundamental aspects of a positive company culture and an innovative, high-functioning team, such as diversity, psychological safety, healthy conflict, and honest feedback. These are critical elements for a better workplace and a more effective organization. However, these elements aren't magical, nor do they promise instantaneous change. Achieving a positive work culture takes time, intention, a bit of imperfection, and meaningful collaboration. In a nutshell, beyond the buzzwords, a positive culture will require a whole lot of hard work. But if you're not afraid of hard work, the results of such an effort will not only lead to a more effective, innovative organization, but it will also improve the lives of your employees. As the boundaries between our work and our lives become less clear, a positive culture allows for continued engagement despite distractions. It also allows for a more seamless integration between work and our lives, simply because we can be more of ourselves unapologetically bringing our best new ideas, our unique strengths, and our contributions to something bigger than ourselves. A positive work culture is the ideal environment to shape a better future. You know what else is needed? You. So, go on. Go help shape the future. To learn more about David Burkus and his amazing work, and to check out his free resources, go to davidburkus.com. That's David, B-U-R-K-U-S, Com. Remember to click subscribe to Humans Now and Then. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, make sure to leave a rating and a review. I greatly appreciate it. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this has been Humans Now and Then, hosted and produced by Rebecca Scott. Episode notes can be found at humansnowandthen.com. Thank you for listening.